0: Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. Today's podcast is going to take the format of discussion that we had with Justin Urquhart-Stewart, who very kindly joined us to discuss all things markets and economics, We touch on subjects such as the US-China trade war. What could happen if Trump leaves the White House in the US elections later on this year? We touch on the sectors that we felt were particularly interesting given the changes to the working environment due to COVID-19. We also touch on market volatility and where opportunities could be for investors. We take a look at Europe as well and touch very briefly, of course, on, on Brexit and how that could play out uh, given the, the backdrop of, uh, of coronavirus. And we also do uh, have a look, quick look around uh, Asia and how the Chinese economy is going to be playing out there for some of the Southeast Asian uh, economy. So a very broad discussion. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. Anybody that likes to watch a video of such discussions, please do check out the UK Investor Magazine website in the video section where you'll be able to find the video that we did with Justin. Thank you very much. Hello and thank you to everybody that is listening or watching this interview that we have today. Very kindly joining us uh, Justin Urquhart-Stewart. Thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure, thank you for asking me. So, Justin, let's start off with something really broad, actually looking at the overall markets because there's a lot of factors playing through that we'll get into uh, later on uh, in the discussion. But from your perspective, when you're looking at overall global markets at this point in time, where do you see value and how do you see things playing out in the next few months?
1: Well, take, take a step back and think about what we normally expect, particularly stock markets, to do. The idea of a stock market is to try and provide a sort of forward-looking discount as to what's going to be happening over the 18, next 18 months. The trouble is, at the moment, there appears to be a fog bank in front of it, so the market can't really see through it. It's, it's very confused as to what's happening. Having said that, there are also some unusual structures happening which are impacting directly on both the bond market, remember it's much, much larger than the equity market, but also on the equity market as well. And particularly when you look at that, and that is the support and effect of government intervention. And so what you've got is not just the quantitative easing, albeit people using different terms for it, but actually the amount of government support that's come in, quite rightly, it's what it's had to try and do. And quite luckily with interest rates being so low, those with reserve currencies can do so whilst they still ha- are able to retain some credibility. Um, so that's provided money to go in and you can see exactly impact what impact that's had on the bond market. But also very fact, you've had governments, you it in the States buying corporate bonds and Japan, they've taken it to a whole new length uh, so that the biggest purchaser and owner of uh, Japanese government bonds, of course, is Japanese government. And you've even had the Japanese government now actually buying... Uh, leading equities as well. So we're in a rather strange position, whereby there is artificial support being provided to markets uh, at the moment, and markets are then reacting to shorter-term issues. And you will see that over the next few days, if there's a reaction to, there will be a reaction, to an agreement on Congress for the further COVID support package coming through. Uh, there's going to be a very good chance they'll reach some form of fudged agreement at some stage, and the market will probably take that positively. Um, uh, But at the same time, any time there's a a view that the vaccine has been found or not found or tested not tested, again, the markets react to that in a relatively short-term basis. So we've got to be very careful of this market. So if you're looking longer term and you believe that actually the global economy isn't going to completely fall apart, and we're going to actually um, be in a better state in a few years' time, then you look through that and you use these significant areas of volatility, as being, being opportunities to be able to buy into the market but very selectively because how those companies have changed quite radically over the past few months still has some way to play out.
0: So when you're looking at you mentioned two factors there of course there's the intervention from from governments and central banks and then to some extent there's the management of the coronavirus crisis by governments. Which do you think that markets holds uh, more dearly in terms of looking for optimism in uh, you know, the, the way out of this situation? Are they going to be looking to central banks just to be pumping money into the system regardless of what's happening in the coronavirus? Because we obviously see some very sharp rallies whilst we're seeing pretty poor economic data. Or do yeah. you think that, you know, the, the big catalyst to actually finish this is going to be very strong management of the coronavirus crisis, potentially, uh, you know, treatment that, that comes through. Will, will markets just look through that and say, look, money's being pumped into the system. It doesn't really matter what's happening in the real economy.
1: No, it does matter. The, the government support is absolutely fundamental and vital. Um, but actually what markets will be looking for is what's the next stage? I dare I say there's a level of complacency that they almost expect governments to provide that sort of support. Put it this way, if they didn't, life would be considerably worse uh, than it is. So that's a given. Now, actually, what uh, investors and what markets are looking for is, so how do you now manage this? How do you change and adjust for the new environments, the new style of economy? And so what has changed in the way we work, the way we invest? And, of course, the primary driver for this is that vital word confidence, and that confidence coming down to, again, the primary driver in most economies, the consumer. So in America, how does Joe Schmo feel living in Little Rock, Arkansas, shopping in Walmart with Mrs Schmo and their mortgage and their 401k? And are they in a position where they feel they're confident to go out and spend? If that person, that family um, uh, does uh, does not feel confident, then uh, uh, I'm afraid we still have a longer term problem to work our way through. What has been interesting is when you look at some of that confident data, confidence data coming through, there appears to be a natural view that people want to see recovery. There's a, a feeling of optimism that actually we can work our way through it, but still a fear that they're not quite sure what's happening. Um, and that's very much going to be down to us to be able to say to people, don't get yes, be concerned, be worried. But actually we can see where the growth comes to from here and in which sectors, which companies and how it's going to operate. There is going to be no V-shaped simple recovery, despite what Mr. Trump loves to talk about. Um, V-shape is just a a rather rude gesture. It's actually going to be more of a W-shape, that's to say lots of little ups and downs the entire time. But one would hope over the next two or three years, we're going to see more of an upward trajectory, but it's not going to be a smooth ride. It will be a volatile ride. But again, as I say, We can use that for our benefit if the areas you're looking at get suddenly discounted.
0: Okay, so you obviously touched on there on individual companies uh, driving us out of that. Now, if we're looking, particularly in the United States, at the recovery in the equity market, it's actually been quite limited to, you know, five or six tech stocks. Uh, Of course, they're very much uh, falling into this category of being stay-at-home stocks. Obviously, Apple people want to be sitting at home. They want the latest device. Uh, people from oh. YouTube, that obviously feeds through into, into Alphabet. Is, is there a risk that people are looking at equity markets and thinking actually things are doing okay when actually a lot of these gains here are being, um, you know, seen in very few stocks that are lifting up in, indices, but oh. really, you know, the, the underlying economies show, being shown in the rest of the market that, you know, things aren't actually that good. And to some extent, is, is there um, some concern that people are just going back to shares that have been successful in the past and maybe seeing them as safe havens uh, yep. in that situation?
1: And, and that's, I quite understand why some investors would think that. They've got to be really, really careful. The economy and the stock market are related, but they're not the same thing. They will not necessarily work in tandem together. Also, things have fundamentally changed. So what were your safe havens a few years back are now not that. They have changed quite radically. You're also quite right, the recovery we've seen in America was primarily around NASDAQ, primarily around the, the, the acronym of FANGS, those uh, technology ones you're referring to, and we need to see a broader move out from there. Uh, we've, what you haven't seen there, therefore there is any particular recovery in the, comer- in the um, retail side yet, because that's gonna go through a huge change, uh, not just in terms of purchasing, But how people are purchasing, you were making reference to it before in terms of online and being at home and things. So we have to look, therefore, what's the new structure of the economy going to look like? What are the big themes that have come out of the uh, COVID crisis? And of course, bearing in mind one thing that we were already, prior to the virus breakout um, outbreak, we were heading for a slowdown, put it politely, or significant recession anyway. And so, therefore, some of the risks that one had highlighted then uh, were really, very, many, many ways, brought to the fore this time. A classic example of that being the uh, the, the light dining um, phenomena in the, particularly in the British high street, uh, which was so much of that was focused was financed by uh, short term private equity, bunch of deal junkies, operating on a three year basis, loading loading those companies up with debt, and they'll sell with heavy debt in a fair wind. But as soon as that wind changes, a lot of them won't be able to survive. Before this crisis, you saw the likes of Jamie Italia and Carlucci's going down. And now we've seen a whole raft of them actually following as well. So we're going to see that sort of change in terms of uh, those style of companies, but also change in terms of behavior for businesses. In terms of supply lines, companies are now looking to shorten those supply lines for reasons of risk, because they don't want to have the risk of having extended supply lines. That does not mean that iPhones are gonna move out of China and move to Isleworth anytime soon. What it does mean though, is companies will be looking for more regionalization or localization of certain aspects, which they could probably try and find locally. Some of those businesses don't exist yet, and therefore they will respond to what's going on. You can already begin to see some of this occurring as businesses are changing towards adapting towards newer areas. This is one of the benefits actually Britain's got at the moment, rather surprisingly, which we did not have 30 years ago. You go back 30, 40 years ago, and you found that actually most of our economy was based on Well, old farts like me, when you actually went out and got a job, you either worked for the government or the services, or you worked for a large corporation, or you may have become a professional, a lawyer or something like that. But you didn't become an entrepreneur. Uh, Actually, almost entrepreneurs in those days were referred to in that wonderful middle class uh, way of actually, oh my God, you're going into trade. Um, Well, actually, of course, now many more people have become entrepreneurs, some because they had to, because they've been uh, let go, as the euphemism is by corporations, but also actually in terms of people's willingness to take the risk and go out and do it. We set up more small businesses in this country, or startups rather, than France and Germany, put together. Now, where did this come from? I'm not too sure. Um, You know, we can't all been watching Dragon's Den, but it has been an interesting phenomena. And this is not just based in the southeast. You go around the business parts of Britain, you'll find a lot of these. Now, obviously, COVID has had a huge impact on that. But it's that attitude of people willing to say, I'm going to try something else and have another go and try to find the capital to be able to do that. One of the problems that Britain's got is actually the provision of that capital, not so much for startups, there are lots of startup alternatives, it's for secondary finance for the next stage of growth, which is an area I'm particularly trying to to address, so to enable those companies to get to the next stage rather than just get bought up. Um, or find themselves having to have the expensive capital by being drawn to London. So what you're seeing is that, that change of localization. There's another issue, of course, that occurred, and forgive me for, for going on a bit too long on this, and that is the issues of environmental elements. Two or three years ago, dealing with client portfolios, having a green environmental issue was slightly of an afterthought. It was a bit like an apology. I've got my portfolio, oh, and I better have something that's environmentally positive as well. That's changed. Now you're getting pension funds and you're getting clients coming in saying, I want to have a portfolio which is environmentally sound and be able to make sure I can uh, show that. And that's being reflected also in companies. So the oil companies are a classic example at the moment. One of the reasons that Aramco wanted to come to the market as quickly as it possibly could is quite rightly the Saudis realized in a hundred years' time, they're going to be sitting on a pile of oil. do you have a pile of oil, a lot of a lake of oil, which is actually worth very little indeed. So get the money for it now, for value now, for what, uh, you, or what you get in the future. Also, what it means is the likes of BP, and remember only five years ago, they were laughed at hysterically as changing their brand name from British Petroleum to Beyond Petroleum. Everyone laughed at them. Now, of course, that's exactly what they're having to do. Every single oil company has got to show itself its green credentials, its uh, social responsibility credentials, and to be able to show itself that it is actually changing away. um, And therefore, its business models change. You've seen over the past few weeks how many of those businesses have come out with huge write-offs because they know their valuations have dropped and they're going to have to readjust. That is not bad news. That's actually good news as they see these businesses adjust. And at the same time, the investors' markets change with them as well. They do not wish to be associated with things which are environmentally damaging. And I don't mean just because out of goodness of their heart, but because actually it will have impact on value as well. And it's not just green things, it's that corporate social responsibility, um, which is now uh, a, a much more of an important element than before.
0: So, yeah, interesting point, actually, there, uh, Justin. We were discussing BP on the podcast yesterday. And, and one of the things that, uh, that, I, that I saw. Uh, on an interview with the CEO of BP, he was actually talking about the amount of coffee that uh, BP sold. So that sort of shows where they are um, in, in their sort of timeline. Now, do you think that companies like BP are going to be able to shift their business models towards a greener, lower carbon business models before they really start to be shunned by the, the asset management industry, and obviously lose that buying pressure in, into yep. their properties.
1: And the answer is, if they don't move swiftly enough, then uh, the asset managers, the insurance companies, uh, will actually start moving away because they won't want to be associated. This could be done either by significant change, BP are trying to do that now, Uh, Or what you'll find is some companies will just split themselves between something which is actually the socially acceptable side and then the sin company, uh, which is the old element running down the old oil mining or whatever it happened to be, the the commodity side of it, which is seen to be less attractive. Um, So watch for companies going through this change every single company, particularly in that sector, will have to fly a flag showing that we are environmentally sound or we are moving that way in a measured period of time. If they don't do that, then they will be punished by the market. So it'll either by swift change or by splitting. And you'll also see, and you can again see this in the papers over the past few weeks, uh, sell-offs occurring as people get rid of some of those assets. And that's actually a bigger issue you'll find, not just in the oil companies, because companies managing their debt at the moment will be shedding uh, assets, not always bad assets, sometimes quite good ones, because they want to have the cash, pay down the debt, they don't want that now. Um, And that also then provides us with opportunities for actually being able to buy into some of these uh, orphan companies which are being chucked out, um, and uh, sometimes being chucked out, requiring further finance. And we have to be careful, because you don't want to find yourself buying into something which is just a, a, a duff product, Um, but nonetheless, I think some quite interesting ones may come out of that. Another risk here, beware of, and I was writing about this the other week, you remember that old phrase we had, I think, about 10 years ago, um, we had a wave of them, the zombie companies, those companies which should have died after a recession, but didn't because the banks couldn't afford to pull the plug, and so they carry on going, they keep on asking for money, and you'll never get your money back, and yet at the same time, no one wants to kill them. Well, we're seeing a return of some of those zombies coming out, um, and we need to be very careful. Investors should look very carefully as the future of those businesses. Um, the fact they want to take our money, uh, when in fact, of course, uh, they're actually waiting to be, to be killed off. Uh, and the sooner they get killed off, the better. Why don't they get killed off? Is because the banks sometimes don't want to waste capital. And having put it aside for those losses, have a look at the losses they've already had to write off in the past few months. Um, and they don't want to add to that. So that's a key risk for investors. Please be aware of the zombies.
0: So that, that's an interesting point actually there, uh, Justin, with the, the zombie companies, because there's obviously been a number of quite a few companies that have obviously uh, cut a lot of jobs. And, and one thing that's noticeable walking through the city of London, how little people there are uh, walking through there compared uh, to, what, to what there was Um, You know, at the beginning of the year, lots of uh, sort of cafes and shops have been ripped out already. So this uh, is obviously spelled some trouble for the commercial uh, real estate uh, market. I mean, do you think this is going to be something that um, we we see transition through uh, the the pickup in the economy? Or do you think this is here to stay forever, given that... Myself, we're here working from home, as are many other people. uh, We've all adapted. Are we going to want to go back into the offices in in, in the numbers that we are? And if we don't, what does that mean for places like the City of London? Right. Number one, there has been a fundamental change in what's happened here,
1: and it's not going to go back to the way it was. doesn't matter. It doesn't mean it stays as it is now. It will adapt. And so what has happened, as you quite rightly say, uh, the city appears to be empty, and so all those... Other businesses, effectively the collateral damage of this is the pret a manger's and all of that. You take Canary Wharf. Canary Wharf is almost deserted. But go underneath Canary Wharf into the shopping centre, quite a high-end shopping centre in some respects. And again, deserted. As you say, places being shut down, ripped up. So fundamentally, what's going to happen? And my old business at Seven Investment Management, what you're finding there is they've got a lot of premises over a period of time when there's the next break clause. So not all companies will do it immediately. They'll have to wait two or three, five years when the next break clause is. It's a very good chance that they'll reduce their, uh, the amount of property they've got because they don't need it all. It's a high cost, so why should I bother? And so therefore what I'll do is I'll have my staff in on rotation um, And because one of the problems is you can't just say everyone's going to work from home because one of the management issues you've got running a team is that you need people to come together. You need to be able to carry out, make sure there's mentoring, development, a team attitude. And doing that over Zoom is not easy. Um, you need the sort of mutter from the gutter next to the, uh, in the canteen or next to the water fountain or whatever it happens to be. And teams being bound together. So you'll find people coming in for, and we already had an anacrony, an anacrony, an, 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 they had a term for it last year. My language is gone. Um, of the twat, uh, forgive me for being vulgar, I don't mean that. It's Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays. And my cousin, who lives up in Northumberland, was actually uh, now reached agreement with his London firm he's working for, a leading um, investment management firm, that he was going to be able to stay at home on Mondays and Fridays and just come down Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays, heads twat. Um, And that was before the virus. Now there's going to be much more of that, except not just those three days, other variations on that. And that's actually going to be very constructive. It's going to mean less commuting, so the impact on that. It's going to be less use of uh, office space, and therefore less also retail support required. So damage, but a fundamental change. One positive coming out of it, I noticed this actually down in some of the Kentish towns, is increased demand for local premises in those areas, where people are saying, actually, I no longer need to be in the city, but in fact, I need to have an office. Actually, I could put that in Maidstone or Tunbridge or one of the other regional uh, towns, so I don't necessarily have to go into the main city. It'll be interesting to see as well if the same thing applies in Manchester and other areas. It will do, but not to the same extent. So this is a fundamental change which the technology was bringing to us anyway, but this has pushed it forward. We always had, I'm sure you've had conversations in the past, people, I want to work from home. And traditionally managers have said, no, I don't want you working from home because I can't see what you're doing and you won't be as efficient. Actually, I've always found people working from home tend to work harder and far more efficiently. Um, and, uh, but the technology has now meant that that is now much easier, but you're going to have to find the ability also to manage the team as well, um, and so therefore having the part-time office uh, participation. So it's going to impact on certainly the commercial property companies. They're going to have to change a lot of their properties into, and you're going to see an amazing selection of uh, suddenly high-end flats being offered for sale and rent uh, in some of those office blocks. It'll be interesting to see how much of that is actually going to be taken up because the old offices of that scale and size will be a thing long gone.
0: Okay, so that's obviously looking, you know, investors are sort of taking that in, maybe looking at what life will be like after COVID. Now, some may be tempted to look at uh, investing in the potential end of of COVID and, and, and a treatment or a vaccine. Now, this is obviously taking a very quick look at the biotech sector. Justin, do you think that is something that is worthwhile trying to pursue in trying to allocate some capital towards a company or selection of companies that are going to bring this crisis to an end potentially?
1: I've always found it very difficult when it comes to uh, biotech um, on the basis that uh, you're never quite sure which one's going to be the winner because when it comes to medical developments and technologies, a a legion of things can go wrong. And what they're trying to do, obviously in the case of the vaccine for COVID, uh, is obviously they're trying to speed up the testing process. Uh, And of course, that's very difficult to speed up, so you can get things through quickly, but it means you're gonna be cutting corners in various areas, so greater risk. Who's going to be the winner? The answer is, we have no idea. Um, And uh, so I would not be trying to bet on all of those. Um, because I think it's uh, going to be very difficult to actually pick the winner. Is it worth therefore taking it as a sort of sector and having a, uh, an ETF which is actually going to actually reflect that? That might be of more interest, certainly in terms of making up something to be aware of what's inside the ETF, in terms of medical, not just development, uh, but also in terms of product sales, sometimes quite mature products as well. Um, that is something you could have good exposure to as a sector. But trying to pick the individual companies, whether it's Roche or other ones or Ambassador Zeneca, you're merely throwing darts at a board. You have no real idea at that stage.
0: Okay, fantastic. So let's take it back again to uh, a broader view of things. And let's look uh, at the globe and uh, the different economic centers. So let's start off here in Europe. Now, I mean, Europe's been quite mixed in terms of the response to COVID. So obviously, you saw Italy and Spain, um, you know, terrible death numbers there. But, you know, countries such as Germany were seen to be keeping it under control. What does this sort of mean for the economy going forward? And I mean, are, are there opportunities within this, uh, this area, um, potentially those countries such as Germany, that's, that's probably kept things under control, Yep. Could you see then coming back from the recovery quicker and does that pose a more interesting investment than some of the other countries such as maybe Italy and Spain that have been you know, caught up in it a little bit more?
1: Well obviously uh, the good news is with uh, what's happening with Europe and particularly within the EU is the fact that first of all they've got the support package going through and it's very difficult to get 27 countries all to agree to go in the same direction. Particularly, of course, when you got the division between those who were going to be more conservative, and you had the, the famous four who were trying to be more conservative, uh, actually apparently excluding Germany. It didn't really exclude Germany, it's just they were having to chair the committee. Uh, so it was an issue that uh, highlighted the differences, and there's a fundamental flaw, member within the EU, and that, of course, is the euro. The euro still has a fundamental flaw in it, which, unless it's addressed, means that it will eventually fail, not immediately. Now, you may think, what's that going to do with companies? Well, it'll impact on the confidence relating to it. The flaw is this. In the United Kingdom, we have a single currency for the moment, um, but we have uh, harmonization of regulation. So the bank regulation throughout the entire United Kingdom is the same. We have free movement of capital. Um, Money is lent down to Cornwall, spent, and then comes back again. It recycles through. That does not happen necessarily throughout the whole of the EU, certainly in Germany and, say, Greece. And also the same fiscal structure, not to say the same taxes, because taxes in Scotland will vary, but basically the same fiscal system. You do not have that in the EU at the moment. And so, therefore, you're going to have these two things pulling apart from one another so you've got this fundamental gap between the likes of Greece and southern Italy, uh, sorry, southern Europe. Um, pulling apart from what actually Germany and the northern countries actually want to do. So until that is addressed, that flaw inside the, EU, in the euro is still going to be there. The way to try and manage that, actually, is something that's happened before. It probably won't happen, but actually you go back 70 years and you go back less in South Africa, you actually split the currency. So someone like Greece, for example, will have its debt still maintained in euros. It's still going to pay its debt back, but the Germans won't allow them ever to write it off. But, you know, what you'll do is you make it undated and you just uh, put it in a position where it just uh, chunders on. But you then have a domestic currency and the tradable olive or something like that and allows the domestic economy to start growing. It discounts heavily and then start picking up again. that actually allows those economies to have that flexibility without reneging on their international debt. It's not pretty, uh, but it's workable. We've seen it work in the past, whereas at the moment they're storing up problems by not having this. Now, what that means is those countries which are currently suffering from uh, these difficulties are going to find it very difficult to grow their economies. So we go back to Spain, Portugal, Italy, back to Southern Europe and, of course, Greece. Um, And so the growth opportunities there are really going to be quite frustrated. The property markets come back a bit, but not hugely. Um, So it's going to be in Northern Europe, we're going to see greater levels of investment coming through, greater levels of demand. Some like Germany has got an interesting problem. A great manufacturing base, we all know that. Actually, in terms of technology, not so good. Um, not they've got bad technology, but they don't have the technological smaller business development that we've seen, certainly in the UK. Um, and so that's going to be an interesting area that you know, their old engineering technologies will change and adjust. Their excellent cars will move into the next generation very successfully. Um, but uh, it's going to be a different style of business there. So it's interesting interesting to see how that adapts and changes. Europe hasn't always been very good at at, uh, changing at speed um, because it's run by committee. Um, Whether we are going to be able to benefit from that remains to be seen because we haven't even agreed actually what Brexit is yet. Um, So that's going to give us another problem. So Europe, good news, tick, it's actually agreed to go to the next stage. Bad news, it hasn't sorted out the euro and can it actually attract new investment money in and the answer is in Southern Europe, they're going to find it difficult. In Northern Europe, yes. But we need to actually see more substantial confidence returning. And those PMI figures are only just picking up now. They're just getting above the 50 level. So we're seeing some growth. But it's a bit
0: thin. You, you did mention their Brexit. And speaking about Europe, I'm sure we have to uh, touch on it in some way. Yep. So obviously, you know, it's not been discussed as widely as it has been. Now, do you think that any negative impacts that could have been caused by Brexit is just going to be swallowed up into the coronavirus downturn? We're going to go through possibly a hard Brexit. Who knows what's going to happen at the end of the year? We're already in a recession. Any, any further uh, you know, potential market volatility is just going to be um, sucked into already that what's there, and then we just move through it, and it becomes, to some extent, a bit of a non-event.
1: I, I wish it was going to be a non-event. Sadly, I think it's still going to be that. In terms of day-to-day news, it will get sucked together with it. However, what it means is if companies do not have the right tax arrangements for exporting into Europe. Um, and you could be as basic as, say, the Japanese cars in Sunderland. Remember, Nissan were offered a deal which we weren't told about. We actually now know what that deal was. A, the taxation regime must remain the same as it is now which of course Mrs May promised, but couldn't deliver. And of course, Boris then didn't promise, but sort of claims that it's all going to remain the same, but he can't actually guarantee that's going to be the case. So we don't know. So there are some businesses which could fundamentally really suffer unless they get a proper agreement. Um, and uh, short term, that's going to cause some issues. So what you're going to find is, yes, it all get blurs together with the rest of COVID, but other particular sectors will be suffering greatly. Um, and of course, a lot of this is being hung up around the shipping industry, sorry, fish, the fishing industry. And whilst one has a natural sort of uh, sympathy with the uh, with the fishing industry, um, it's a very small part of our economy overall. But it does one that has an emotional pull um, partic- to particular areas. Um, but realistically, just being a cold-hearted uh, uh, economist at it, looking at it, it's not that important. Um, so actually, what I'd want to see is much more focus on making sure. We can have free access to the rest of that market because where else are we going to get access to? Is it going to be America with a free trade deal? Don't be silly. That's not going to happen anytime soon. Certainly not with the Trump administration, but frankly with any American administration. It takes time to do these things. They can't be rushed. And the Americans, frankly, won't be rushed into doing so. But the best thing we can try and do at the moment is try and get ourselves the best Brexit deal we possibly can. But it does mean something is going to have to be sacrificed. And it might be the herring.
0: Okay, so you you mentioned Trump there, and I think that's probably a a natural uh, point to move to now in the United States. So, latest news, uh, Donald Trump has decided that TikTok's assets in the United States should be taken away from the Chinese, which some would call theft. What do you think the longer term implications or, or even shorter term implications could be, um, given that the Chinese won't be taking this very well? No,
1: um, I have to say I'm uh, horrified at the ignorance and stupidity of the Trump administration. The Chinese issues are not new, whether it's to do with trade tariffs, whether it's to do manipulation of the currency, whether it's to the protection of international intellectual property rights. We know all of that and discussions and agreements had been progressing with all of those issues. Um, The other issues relating to China, a lot of them relate to actually border disputes, which are coming to the fore every so often. My part of the world is down in Southeast Asia. And so South China Sea, where China's managed to upset five countries all at once, which is very quite remarkable. You could upset Vietnam, Brunei, Indonesia, Philippines, and Malaysia all at the same time. That's very impressive. But they've actually got 17 border disputes around their borders. They've got big borders. But the thing that really gets me about the the Trump administration is the ignorance in terms of what was already being done and the ignorance in terms of the tariff elements he was going on about, because actually, this actually affects America more than it affects China. And so to understand how trade actually works, and that was, to me, the ignorance and stupidity. The other element is if you wish to deal with the Chinese or anyone in the Far East, Um, is you take account of one of the most important things and that is face, pride. You do not shout at the Chinese in public and accuse them of various bits and pieces of uh, badly behaving. You go privately with a consenting adult in a small cupboard round the corner and you get your deal sorted out there and then you come back. If you are going to shout and wave at them from the outside you will get the wrong answer coming back from China. China, whatever you uh, uh, think about its political operations and its economic operations and its security operations, either domestically with the uh, Uyghurs, uh, there's an awful lot of social disturbance going on in China. It's just you don't get to hear about it too often here. Um, but whatever you think of that, if you want to actually reach an agreement with China, you do so quietly. You do not do that with a megaphone. Now, you could say, in which case, I don't want to deal with China you cannot ignore the world's second largest economy. China isn't pure communist. It's a dictatorship. Um, It's a quasi-capitalist dictatorship. Um, And so you have to learn to live with the dragon. Uh, What you don't do is tweak the dragon's tail. It doesn't help. And by the way, of course, we haven't exactly helped ourselves with China. Remember, we're coming out of the the, uh, hundred years of humiliation, they call it. When you go back actually to uh, the 1830s up to the end of the 1940s, so it's actually 110 years, that debt, that century of humiliation where you had virtually every other nation in the world taking bites out of China, concessions, or actually we'd call them colonies. We know Hong Kong, whether it's Belgium, Austria-Hungary, Russia, America, Japan, everybody having a go at it. it was made worse by the fact, of course, the British... We were growing our opium very happily in India, and we decided to, to actually sell it in China. The Chinese didn't want it, so we forced them to buy it and fought two opium wars. Rather embarrassing, really, when you think about some of the drug-dealing countries in the world. And Of course, we were one of those. So that's just a little bit of history. But it's not irrelevant, but it means, therefore, that the Chinese aren't necessarily just going to roll over and want their tummies tickled you're going to actually have to reach uh, some very significant and solid agreements with them. And that means careful negotiation. China is not a low-cost producer anymore. Trump said China's got to get out of low-cost production. Again, shows his ignorance. The Chinese would say we've been doing that for years. We've been transferring low-cost production to Indonesia, Bangladesh, and Hull. Um, They are going further up the tree to be able to have higher value. And also look at the makeup of the economy. And you can hear this often on the BBC. China, the world's largest manufacturing country. Well, actually, you look at the makeup of the Chinese economy. Most of it is now the service sector, not manufacturing. China has changed. Um, And so, therefore, actually throw away some of those old arguments over the old trade tariffs um, and actually look in terms of how we develop the service economy of China. That's why China's been very interested in actually how the UK has developed. So we need to be able to um, uh, make sure we have a proper agreement with China, but it takes time. Who's China going to deal with first? And the answer is not Britain. China will deal with the largest trading bloc in the world, the EU. It'll then deal with America, and then it may get around to dealing with us at some stage. I'm afraid that's one of the pains we have to go through if we vote for, for Brexit. We're no longer that important. So we need to be able to have a deal with China, but we need to change the way we go about dealing with them. Uh, That doesn't mean you roll over on the security issues with regard to interference in politics and things like that, uh, or Huawei, uh, or TikTok. All of those elements need to be considered. Each of those are actually quite different. Um, But of course, very different from say, someone like Russia. Now be careful, because you get a lot of rubbish talked about Russia. The Russian economy is less than 50% the size of less than 50% of the size of the UK economy. It's tiny, its population is not very large, its number is shrinking and the numbers are falling off a cliff, some I suspect probably being pushed. Um, and so it's not an economic superpower, it is a dangerous power but not a superpower. Now you think that we get wound up every time we fire a missile and think how many hundreds of thousands of pounds did it cost? Well actually the Russians have to pay the same and they can't afford it either. So put them into perspective, they're a security issue, not an economic issue. Um, So uh, China, we must reach an agreement with, and you need to do that with intelligence, um, not uh, the populist bombast that we've got at the moment in the White House.
0: So let's let's stay in Asia then. So with the manufacturing uh, side of China, that's been there for some years. And as you said, they're moving more into the services. Does this mean that we're gonna see an acceleration in manufacturing bases throughout the rest of Asia that will probably see better growth opportunities within the likes of maybe Vietnam, um, Indonesia, than what we may see in China going forward?
1: Yes is the answer, you are seeing more of that and that has been carrying on already and you will see more of it. Um, Certainly ASEAN, uh, which is the area closest to my heart, in Southeast Asia, that area there, There's one big theme we must remember as well. It's not a new one, but it's one that's increasing every single year. And that is the rise of the Oriental consumer. I know this person, it's called my daughter. Um, But actually, you can see the amount of retail expenditure uh, in certainly take something like Indonesia. I remember, let's go back 15 years in Jakarta, 15 years ago, it had about 10 shopping malls, serious sort of Westfield scale shopping malls. Now, last time I was over there, it's got to be over 70 or 80 of them just in Jakarta. I mean, huge ones. And of course, full packed people out with their cards shopping for stuff. The middle class isn't very big at the moment, but it's growing fast. um, And so you're going to see much more of that. All buying their brands, albeit fake brands or double fake brands, depending how you like to have it. Um, But nonetheless changing. You can see that throughout ASEAN. So you're seeing actually more manufacturing as you see that developing, less focus on the commodities because it's obviously the likes of, uh, uh, of Indonesia and Malaysia have had that for many years and they need to move away from that. But lower cost manufacturing you've seen already in Vietnam uh, very effectively indeed. But again, you're gonna come across some of these, uh, these sores uh, in terms of boundary sores, particularly in the likes of with Vietnam with uh, the issues over the South China Sea. Um, and uh, because the Vietnamese and Chinese have formed between them. Um, they did, in fact, fight a little war lasting eight days over the Paracel Islands. Um, but uh, So one uh, has to be careful of those political elements. Let me mention one other element of political dispute with, uh, with China, which is important, and that, of course, is the East China Sea, where you have the islands there in dispute with Japan. This is a, a big issue. The argument is about oil and gas. It's got nothing to do with oil and gas at all got something much more oriental, face again. Two big powers butting up against one another, who's gonna back down? This is not helped by the Japanese premier going along to the, uh, the war shrine in uh, Tokyo, where the war criminals also happen to be. And he knows exactly what he's doing. He's tweaking the dragon's tail. That does not go down well. The relationship between the Chinese and Japanese has never been good. The Japanese seem to have missed out one word, which would help a very great deal. Sorry would go a long way to it. I'm afraid that's not going to be the case also we should mention in terms of southern asia india because you know this is a huge economy with a much better demographics china's demographics in terms of population dreadful an aging population with a small um, uh, number of younger people coming through india diametrically the opposite much better triangle of aging population with a lot of youngsters coming through but watch out here you have significant disputes with china not only in the Northeast over the Sikkim and Bhutan borders, uh, but also in the north, Northwest with Kashmir, which is not just a an uh, indian Pakistan issue, because about 25% of it was nicked by the Chinese. So you're seeing disputes there. So India though is going to be benefiting still from further manufacturing and also service outsourcing. In the UK, we've been used to that, a lot of their accounting, other elements have already gone there, but also their tech elements uh, are actually much stronger as well. So I have much more interest in Southeast Asia and the developments of India, and that's going to throw up more opportunities. But remember, with any of these areas, and particularly in China, do not regard shares in companies there as being of the same measure that we used to in the United Kingdom. Here we have accounting rules, which sometimes we are suspicious over the quality of those accounting rules, but generally reliable. We used to laugh about Italian sets of accounts. How many would you have? Well, one for the tax man, one for the government, and one for you. Uh, In China, it's not dissimilar. You have no idea actually what you're looking at half the time. And many a famous investment manager has come a cropper in China because that's what they read. And that was completely different to actually what was said and what was done. Um, So be wary uh, of what you're seeing, not only just the indices, which don't always reflect the economy, but also the companies themselves into actually what you're buying into. That's not an excuse not to get involved. It just means you've got to do your research better And in order to actually uh, choose care carefully as to what you want to buy.
0: Okay, just on that point. So, if if you are looking to invest in China, obviously investing in individual equities there is is, is quite difficult. What's the best way to do it? Which is obviously there's various funds out there. Would you look at the ones based in Hong Kong? Would you go mainland um, China shares? How how would you go about doing it?
1: Well, there are two basic ways of doing it one is you're going to invest in the effect of china uh, and again this is an old story but one you can watch developing um, so one of the old effects of developing of, a, of buying the effect of china was the likes of burberry and the brands because the chinese all bought brands now a few years ago that was actually pushed back as people were told don't buy brands it's no longer fashionable so the likes of burberry got pushed to one side but what the Chinese need and how they're going to develop it, you can in invest, therefore, not necessarily in China, but what China is going to be using, what it's going to be needing in terms of technology, in terms of uh, other facilities. So something as basic as Unilever producing all the products, which uh, then China will be needing. So they can produce a lot of that their own. But Unilever aren't stupid. Uh, they're already involved over there. So that's the indirect develop- development of it. Going direct is interesting. I would have preferred going via Hong Kong because there is a greater rule of law in Hong Kong. Uh, my uh, my sort of half brother actually runs a shipping business in Singapore. It's interesting to see how he's moved his base from Shanghai back to Hong Kong. Why? Because there's better rule of law in Hong Kong than there is in Shanghai. He can have a better idea of what's going on. The same will also apply in terms of some of the financial elements as well. So in terms of them picking your companies through Hong Hong Kong, you have a better idea of what's happening. But I wouldn't be uh, critical of people also thinking about, I haven't got the time or the knowledge to do it. Do I just buy an ETF uh, of the uh, Hong Kong, of the Chinese markets? And that's a simple way of going about it. But like any ETF, it's as good as its contents. So you actually have to look at it, is it actually physically reflecting what it's investing, or is it a synthetic one sort of reflecting what it might be? Uh, which I'm always extremely concerned about. I don't like synthetics. I like actual ones in there. Um, so those are two ways of going about Well, three ways of going about it. Uh, so simply an ETF, or you choose your Hong Kong companies individually, um, or go externally and invest in the effect of China.
0: Okay, so let's just take it back. We were discussing the United States and China there. Now, this issue, some would say, is very much the results of Donald Trump. With the election coming up in November, what scope do you think there is for this, uh, a very sharp decrease in tensions, if we see Donald Trump leave the White House? Is is this a problem in China that would um, dramatically reduce overnight?
1: Initially, there will be a certain element of relief. It just depends to what extent that uh, Biden, or more to the point, uh, the people around Biden are going to actually try and appeal to the Trump, uh, supporters by taking on some of the cloak of Chinese aggression. Um, and But I suspect the Chinese will be greatly relieved to be able to be dealing with an alternative to Trump. And not so much they dislike Trump, it's just, it's just a person, he's unreliable. He's not a reliable partner you can deal with. They want someone who's going to be consistent. They take a long, much, much longer term view of the, their trade arrangements. They want people to try and trust. Um, and so there'll be an element of relief but be wary of the corporate, uh, sorry, of the political populism statements coming out in the meantime. Um, Afterwards, hopefully they will be taking a much more constructive view as to what's going on, but the Chinese have to come out as well and start giving people assurance that although they're a one party state, that they're not going to be influencing politics, not going to be stealing secrets, not setting up Huawei or others to try and actually infiltrate uh, countries to uh, for their own benefit. Now it's going to take quite a lot of convincing. Parway, after all, are being thrown out, also America, but also Australia, and of course us, um, and that's going to has, will be causing us significant problems. So that's for the Chinese to try and actually come out and make that persuasive argument. What the Americans now have to do is to be able to say, okay, if we're going to be able to reach an agreement with you, what are you going to get, be able to give us? And then we'll actually be able to try and make sure we go back to a more constructive growing arrangement. Bear in mind, the Americans need the Chinese, apart from else. Who's the biggest purchaser of American debt most of the time? And the answer is, well, actually at the moment it's the American government, but leave that aside. Externally, the answer is it's normally China, sometimes Japan, but China's got a huge holding in American debt. So America needs China to be carry on beholding that debt, if not buying that debt, and equally then uh, America, China needs America because actually it needs America to be buying stuff as well. So they are in a symbiotic relationship which can be positive if both sides want it to be. But with an ignorant individual on one side uh, and, uh, and let's say a rather sort of uh, difficult individual to deal on the other side on the basis we can't see what we're dealing with in China because it's not uh, transparent, uh, we're not going to find an easy agreement on that one. Hopefully post this election If the Democrats do get in, um, then that would be more constructive. But for stock markets, the Democrats aren't always necessarily that positive. Um, So it may well be further taxation rises and things like that. So I wouldn't be at all surprised that we do see a pullback in some of those markets um, as they try and work out what the next stage is. We've had a phenomenal run in markets over the past uh, decade uh, from the banking crisis. And in fact, it matured when Obama stepped down. Unfortunately, what you saw with Trump was he overheated the American economy, going way beyond what it should have been doing. And that result of that is we now have to manage that overheating, which means I suspect you're going to see post the election, I think, some further uh, volatility, which will be an opportunity, but will give further market nerves. I, right? For one, will be keeping some significant cash aside uh, for that, that particular period.
0: Fantastic, uh, Justin, very interesting. Just to finish off, you mentioned Huawei there. That is is something that I've been watching with great interest. So how, how much do you think this story of Huawei is down to security? And how much is down to protecting the tech industry? Of, of course, the Chinese uh, biggest manufacturers in the world, uh, biggest player in the commodity markets. The last frontier to some extent is um, technology, uh, intellectual property. So how much of this is, is Donald Trump uh, and the United States looking at Huawei, seeing the inroads that they're making, not only the United States um, and developed countries, across Africa. and yep. if, they, if they expand any further, the likes of Apple then starts to become inferior to some extent on the world stage. So they're saying we, we, we can't lose this last frontier in the technology. So we're going to go down the security route that, that people will buy to try and stop them in their tracks?
1: It's a very good line of argument, you know, what stage does uh, Alibaba take over from Amazon? Um, particularly if you do start seeing, as we saw uh, the, uh, uh, the tech companies appearing before the Senate committee the other week, um, and there's a big concern that they, these companies are behaving in a monopolistic manner, and remember, the Americans have a track record of breaking up large corporations with their antitrust laws. They did it with steel companies, they did it with telephone companies, um, and uh, so be prepared for others and oil companies as well. Uh, but on the other hand, America needs to compete with the large Chinese national entities. Now, to what extent were we pushed into managing Huawei for security reasons um, uh, on the basis of what we saw happening in Australia? Or was it, are we behaving as uh, Trump's poodle? Well, the truth is we don't know. The effect of Huawei being ripped out of our systems means it puts us a long way back now to actually put in alternatives to Huawei because those agreements have been in place for some time, so the kit's embedded into our system. And that's going to put us at a significant disadvantage in terms of the 5G infrastructure, which any decent economy needs to have in place much, much sooner than later. And if this is going to put us three, four, five years back I don't know, those are the numbers being thrown around. That's going to be a major drag for us overall. But the issue of China developing around the world, and it's fascinating when you do go to the likes of Africa and Sri Lanka, the impact that China's having, and this I do find really very unnerving, cheap debt being offered to those countries to go and build infrastructure by Chinese companies. The cheap debt goes up in cost. They can't be serviced anymore and then the asset themselves are transferred not to the Chinese government but to a Chinese subsidiary and we've seen that in Sri Lanka with a large port being built in southeast uh, Sri Lanka where there is nothing in southeast Sri Lanka except a couple of uh, elephants wandering around and they built a huge port which just happened to fit the Chinese uh, navy in the Indian Ocean which upsets the Indians somewhat and the ownership because they couldn't pay the interest has now reverted to the port of Shanghai. So Chinese behavior like this, I'm afraid, isn't exactly inspiring people with confidence. So put that together with Huawei, and you can see why the level of suspicion is there. But the damage that Huawei, our decision to Huawei, to ourselves is very significant. Whether we think that's the right balance to take with security, I can't answer. I'm uh, I'm very happy to go with the line of uh, what our, our spooks uh, down in Cheltenham reckon to be uh, uh, the right way to go forward. Uh, luckily, we're blessed with a rather good selection of spooks, um, and if they tell us it's a dangerous to have in place, then I'd happily follow them, but it will be painful for us.
0: Fantastic. Justin, thank you very much for, for being with us today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me.
0: So just as a reminder, anyone's listening or watching this, it's available on the UK Investor Magazine website as a video and also on podcast we'll be able to listen to all of our other interviews from the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Once again Justin thank you very much.
1: Jonathan thank you very much indeed. May I wish you all your readers and viewers uh, well and good investing in what are going to be somewhat challenging times.
0: Thank you again.